The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Addressing Unmet Nursing Needs in the Management of IBSC, Understanding the Mechanism of Disease, Newer Therapies, and Coordinated Approaches to Treatment Barriers. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash RZN860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, welcome to Peerview Live. Today, we're going to be addressing the unmet nursing needs and the management of IBS with constipation. We're going to understand the mechanism of disease, some of the newer therapies, as well as talk about coordinated approaches to treatment barriers in this patient population. I'm Brooks Cash. I'm the Chief of Gastroenterology at the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston, Texas, and I'm joined by Kimberly Carnes, an advanced practice nurse. Kim, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Thank you, Dr. Cash, and thank you everyone for joining us today. My name is Kimberly Kearns. I'm a nurse practitioner. I've got 15 years of experience as an advanced practice nurse, all in gastroenterology. I currently work out of Dooley Health and Care out in the western suburbs of Chicago. Dr. Cash, let's get this going today. This activity was developed in partnership with and accredited by SGNA. Visit SGNA at sgna.org. So here are our objectives for today's agenda. We want to provide you with the latest information on the pathophysiology and the potential therapeutic targets for IBSC. We want to show you how to use patient-centered tactics and tools to overcome barriers to guideline-directed IBSC management. And finally, we want to explore methods for creating team-based approaches to IBSC management, incorporating current evidence and guidelines about the appropriate use of current and emerging therapeutic agents. Dr. Cash, take us away. Thanks, Ms. Kearns, and I'm so glad to be joined by you. Let's go ahead and jump into masterclass number one, and I'm going to be talking about the pathophysiology and the targets, the treatment targets in IBS with constipation. Kimberly's going to join us a little bit later and talk about some of the more complex interactions with a multidisciplinary team, as well as team-based approach and some other topics uh, that are really, she's an expert in. So, I'm going to start with the Rome 4 diagnostic criteria for disorders of gut-brain interactions, specifically for irritable bowel syndrome. Now, this clinical-based criteria states that IBS should be considered or suspected in patients who have recurrent abdominal pain at least one day a week on average for the past three months that's associated with at least two of the following features. That pain should be related to defecation and or associated with a change in the stool frequency and or associated with a change in the stool form. Now, these criteria should be fulfilled for the past three months with symptom onset at least six months prior to diagnosis. So that conveys that there's some chronicity to these symptoms. So these are the symptom-based criteria for irritable bowel syndrome. Now, when we think about some of the other criteria and, and um, the qualitative mix for these, the, remember the Rome 4 criteria really are used to diagnose disorders of gut-brain uh, interaction in epidemiologic and pathophysiologic research and in treatment trials. We have taken these over into clinical practice, and they have been validated for that purpose in many of their iterations. But these criteria do require chronic symptoms. And so it's really important for us to, to try to have patients, if they do fulfill those criteria, think about these diagnoses but also recognize that 
there should be and can be some clinically based approaches to these patients. So that led to an article that was published earlier in 2022, which took away some of the more strident chronicity based criteria and basically stated that we should consider irritable bowel syndrome in patients who have recurrent abdominal pain that is somehow related to change in their defecation pattern. So we can be a little bit more broad with regards to that and not necessarily use the, the really rigorous um, scientific clinical trial type evidence or, or criteria for uh, the, the Rome criteria. Now let's talk about the subtypes of IBS. And remember, there are three subtypes of IBS. There's IBS with diarrhea, IBS that's mixed, and IBS with constipation. We're talking about constipation tonight. Now, we've got the Bristol stool form scale shown, and this is a ubiquitous slide. It helps us in clinical practice figure out which group these patients live in. So for constipated type stool, that's type one and type two on this seven type or seven point scale. Type six and seven, and some people even consider five more diarrheal stools, three and four are normal stool form. So for somebody to have irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, they should have a constipated type one or type two stool at least 25% of the time, and they should not have loose or watery diarrheal type stool more than 25% of the time. That's what we call the rule of 25%. The opposite applies for patients with IBS with diarrhea, and then the unfortunate patients with mixed pattern uh, have diarrhea and constipation at least 25% of the time. Now, there's some real challenges and limits to our current treatments for people with irritable bowel syndrome, especially irritable bowel syndrome with constipation. There are no universally applied or accepted treatment protocols or guidelines. We have lots of guidelines, but they're not universally accepted. And of course, some of the recommended therapies in those guidelines and some of the even the diagnostic tests are not available worldwide. They're not available in, in resource-strapped countries or environments as well. There are cumbersome adverse events with some of the medications that we deal with, as well as some of the diagnostic studies that we can do. The treatments don't all work for all patients. Remember, this is a symptom-based condition. It's a syndrome of symptoms. When we talk about IBS, we really should be thinking about a syndrome of symptoms as opposed to a specific disease process. There are multiple different causes of irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, with diarrhea, or mixed. There are new therapies that are really are needed, and we need new therapies with fewer and less impactful adverse events, therapies that target various causes of IBS with constipation, which we are starting to identify, and then therapies with better efficacy for more patients. And we, have, we need really therapies that will identify and, and target these diverse pathophysiology that our patients with IBS have. So this is a conversation that is, is really important, and I think it's important for us to recognize that this is a really complicated and diverse concept in terms of the causes of irritable bowel syndrome with constipation. There certainly in some patients is a psychological component to their GI symptoms. In other patients, there's a motility-driven component. There may be inflammation that can affect motility as well as psychological well-being and sensation. Many patients with irritable bowel syndrome have what's called visceral hypersensitivity, which is a heightened processing of pain stimuli. We don't know the causes of all these different perturbations, and we don't know how important they are for individual patients. That's where the treatment aspect of, of many, much of what we do with patients with irritable bowel syndrome comes into play. We also have to remember that a good number of patients, possibly as high as 30% of patients with chronic constipation 
even in IBS with constipation, also have a component of pelvic floor dysfunction. So, you know, there's lots of different causes to this condition. Unfortunately, we're not able to identify the pathophysiology for many of our patients, and we end up treating the symptoms to try and improve their quality of life. Now, I'm going to move over and talk about some of the therapies, and we always start simply. We start with over-the-counter therapies and lifestyle modifications. So what I mean by that in terms of over-the-counter therapies, specifically for IBSC, is fiber and bulking agents, typically a soluble fiber, but also stimulant laxatives that are available over-the-counter. That would include uh, agents such as bisacodyl or sinicides, and then osmotic laxatives, the most common being polyethylene glycol, uh, and this, as well as magnesium laxatives. So patients have, and I know you, that you all have seen this in drugstores and grocery stores, there's a wide variety of different over-the-counter therapies that patients can use for constipation. And many individuals do use these medications with great success for their constipation symptoms. The ones that Kimberly and I see in clinic are the ones that don't have success with these therapies. And those patients often will require pharmaceutical therapies or prescription therapies. Now, here is a a list of some of the prescription therapies, actually all the prescription therapies for IBS with constipation. You'll notice that as we talk about some of these therapies, some of them are also approved for chronic idiopathic constipation. Don't get too distressed about trying to divide these two conditions. People with chronic idiopathic constipation suffer from the same constipation symptoms that patients with IBS with constipation suffer from, but they don't have such a prominent pain or discomfort type of sensation or bother to them. So that's the major difference between these two conditions. The pathophysiology is felt to be the same, and in many cases, the treatment is largely the same. But with regards to our prescription therapies for IBSC, we have a number of different groups. We've got what are called secretagogues, and that includes agents such as libiprostone, which is a type 2 chloride channel, linaclotide and placanotide, which are both guanylate cyclase C agonists, and we also have fluid retaining agents. And uh, in that group would be a newer agent called tenapanor. This is an agent that is approved for just IBS with constipation. Its dose is 50 milligrams twice a day. And we'll see a little bit later how tenapanor works uh, in patients with IBSC because it is a novel mechanism of action as the newest therapy in our armamentarium of secretagogues. So let's start with a patient case. And this is Kate. She's a 28-year-old female. She's got two-year history of pain and gas, bloating, hard, lumpy stools. She strains at her stools, doesn't have a good bowel movement. She doesn't complain of any diarrhea. She doesn't have um, nausea and vomiting. She does not have uh, you know, a great appetite, but she denies anorexia, weight loss, or recent GI infections. She's got a normal physical. She does have a, a family history of a father who has constipation, but no other significant family history of organic GI disease. She has had some anxiety issues in the past, um, doesn't eat a lot of vegetables, has a high-fat diet, typical American diet, unfortunately. And, you know, she, we've done some testing with her. She's got normal CBC, normal blood count, normal metabolic panel, normal thyroid panel. She doesn't have celiac disease. She's tried fiber. She's tried laxatives. They caused unpredictable symptoms and diarrhea. Uh, and she's had more bloating and gas with bulking agents. So what's the next step for her? Well, one of the next steps, maybe some of these prescription therapies that we talked about, let's watch a video with a brief explanation of the pathophysiology of IBSC and how inhibition specifically of the sodium hydrogen exchanger isoform 3 can actually improve symptoms. And this is the, the channel or the receptor that tenapanor actually interacts with.
Irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, or IBSC, is thought to result from alterations in gut transit, fluid secretion, and sensation, resulting in difficult defecation and abdominal pain. The specific pathophysiology of IBSC is uncertain and likely multifactorial. Existing therapies mediate symptoms. It has been found that regulating NHE3 can correct or override possible causative etiologies by normalizing the electroneutral exchange of sodium ions for intracellular hydrogen ions across the apical membranes in the GI tract. Inhibition of NHE3 works in three ways. First, it blocks sodium absorption, thus retaining luminal water content. This results in faster transit time and softer stool consistency. Second, it decreases intestinal permeability to reduce abdominal pain. And third, it decreases visceral hypersensitivity, which also reduces abdominal pain. So let's talk a little bit more about the role of NHE3 as a new paradigm in IBSC pathophysiology. Remember that this channel aids in intestinal sodium transport and maintenance of salt and water balance in the gut lumen as well as the vasculature. So it exchanges intestinal sodium ions for intracellular protons, and if this is disrupted, that can lead to constipation as well as diarrhea-related disorders. So we know that by inhibiting NHE3, this can reduce sodium absorption, and it diverts dietary sodium to the stool, which in results in increased stool fluid content and gastrointestinal motility. And that is, in essence, the mechanism of action of tenapanor. Now, tenapanor does represent a first-in-class small molecule inhibitor of NHE3. It's the only prescription agent that we have available that inhibits NHE3. It acts locally in the gut. It has minimal systemic availability. It's mostly excreted in the stool along with sodium and potassium, phosphorus, and other electrolytes. It produces increased stool frequency and weight, a softer stool consistency, accelerates transit time, and it decreases intestinal permeability which may actually be one of the ways that abdominal pain is improved in patients with IBS with constipation. So at this point, I'm going to turn it over to Kim, and she's going to take us into masterclass number two. Great. Thank you, Dr. Cash, for such a great overview, and what a great way to kick things off. So let's talk about overcoming barriers to IBS-C care. So what are some of the barriers to care for our patients? Let's start, of course, at the provider level, right? We've got lack of innovative therapies, a lack of understanding of basic disease state or pathophysiology. Well, not if you just listen to Dr. Cash, of course, right? Time constraints, prior advanced practice providers, maybe not prescribing a prosecretary or prokinetic agent, and prior advanced practice providers that seem dismissive of, of course, her symptoms that Kate had described. Now, how about a patient level, right? So maybe prior therapies have either been ineffective or have caused more problems. That's why it's so important to ask a patient, what have you tried before, right? And ask them, what was the effect of this therapy? And of course, even from a patient level, Kate's more concerned about bloating, distension, and pain rather than bowel movements. And I think this is something we look at those global symptoms of IBS, which I know Dr. Cash and I are very, very familiar with. And how about a barrier, of course, from a systems level, right? Inadequate access to effective therapies. And what about cost and even insurance barriers? So let's review some of the most recent guideline recommendations in regards to the management of irritable bowel syndrome with constipation predominance. The table that you are currently viewing 
compares the American Gastroenterological Association, or AGA, and the American College of Gastroenterology, ACG, guidelines. Now, in order to provide some clarification, both guidelines provide either a strong or conditional recommendation, and then, of course, evaluate the quality of evidence regarding the recommendation. That's what you see second, right? And there are definitely some distinct differences that you can see between the two guidelines. So the AGA here, as you can see, has a conditional recommendation with a moderate strength of evidence recommending tenapinor, placanotide, tisegarod, which unfortunately is no longer available in the United States, and lubiprostone for the management of our IBSC patient. The AGA also provides a strong recommendation with high quality of evidence regarding the use of linaclotide for the treatment of IBSC. Now, if we kind of shift gears a little bit, let's look at our ACA gu- ACG guidelines. So the ACG provides strong recommendation with a high quality of evidence regarding the use of the guanylase cyclase C activators. And just to clarify, Dr. Cash went over this already, but this includes placanotide and, of course, linaclotide. It also provides a strong recommendation with moderate evidence for the use of chloride channel activators. Again, that's lubiprostone. The ACG did not provide a recommendation for tenapinor, but just to be clear, this is because the ACG guidelines were developed prior to marketing of tenapinor. Now, just to be fair and balanced, I also just kind of want to point out a little few of the key differences, right? We definitely see here that the AGA has guidelines, but they're conditional with low, rec- uh, with low quality of evidence regarding PEG laxatives. But you can also see here that the ACG recommended against the use of, pro- of PEG laxatives for the treatment of IBSC. And I have to say, guidelines are guidelines, right? And I know that we've all used other types of PEG laxatives when it comes to IBSC patients. But I think what we really need to focus on when we look at the differences between the two is that the ACG guidelines really focused on the global assessment of IBSC patients. Now, last but not least, I want to point out that on the right-hand side here, you can see that both the AGA and ACG recommended patient-centered care and education. Hmm. Let's explore that a bit further. So how do we start with this patient-centered care, right? And as you can imagine, right, the patient is the center, right? So of course, a history and physical exam centered around our patient, right? With, of course, patient-focused communication and education. And this builds upon, then, the patient being involved in treatment and decision-making. This leads to expectation-setting which I'll tell you, our patients with IBS, right? They've had these these symptoms for a long time. It's so important to include expectations when we are developing a plan of care. And this, of course, leads to a long-term positive patient-centered relationship. And as you can see, this develops into improved outcomes, increased patient satisfaction, and a decrease in healthcare utilization. We recognize a patient-centered approach improves communication and engages patient in shared decision-making. So how can we do that? Here are a few tips, right? Ask open-ended questions. Practice active listening. Don't worry. We'll get to some action items in just a second. Understand the patient's perspective, right? Share information. Reach agreements on management plans, right? This is a two-way process. Individualized treatment plans, because as Dr. Cash suggested already, not every patient is going to respond the same to each therapy. So make sure you individualize your treatment plan. And of course, summarize your visit and discuss follow-up. So 
How do we put this into action? So we'll start with asking an open-ending question. And this, of course, helps determine a patient's understanding of their IBS. You can suggestively say, so you have a diagnosis of IBSC. So what does this mean to you? This also helps, of course, clarifying goals of treatment when we ask open-ended questions. Now, of course, practice active listening. This helps identify patients' concerns about IBS. I always make sure I summarize back what a patient has said. I always say, is it fair to say that you have reported? And then I let them hear what I have to say and confirm or deny that, right? But also, this allows the patients to express all of their concerns. And last but not least, you have to display some empathy, right? Reassure your patients about IBS. They've had lots of symptoms. It's quite scary to experience some of these symptoms. But again, reassure them to make sure that they know you are confident in regards to your diagnosis of IBS. So let's review some communication, empathy, education, barriers, and solutions. Because we talked about that's what we're going to begin with in our master class too, right? So barriers and solutions. First of all, we look at our barriers of bi-directional unmet communication or information needs between the clinician and the patient, right? There's unmet empathy or validation needs, not recognizing your patient's feelings or expressing empathy. There's also shame and stigma about discussing bowel issues. Dr. Cash and I can tell you, we've talked about poop most of our careers, right? So sometimes I address myself from the beginning as saying I'm the princess of poop, right? This leads into one of these solutions, right, to break down one of these barriers. So let's dive into some more practical solutions that we can utilize in practice. Maybe having longer, more frequent appointments to discuss patient concerns. Express empathy. Provide validation. Practice active listening. Partner with your patient. Now, Dr. Cash has already introduced us to the Bristol stool chart. I'll tell you, I keep one in my pocket. I bring it out almost during every single evaluation. It saves time, but also is a great tool to help your patients so they can help point out which stool they identify with. And also when they come back and visit you, they're going to know this tool. They can go back and look at it and help quantify. It actually helps a lot. So involve your patient in treatment decisions. Again, shared decision-making. And use ball tracking apps for patients to record information about stool consistency and timing, of course, to share with other GI providers. Let's talk about barriers to access and cost. Some of these barriers include patients unable to access care or medications. Medications are too expensive for the patient. How about if they lack insurance? Well, what are some solutions that we can utilize in practice? Maybe use telehealth to improve some access. That's changed our practice for sure over the last few years. Make sure you're aware of the savings and assistance programs for patients for their medications for both public and private insurances. Consider having knowledge regarding comparative cost analysis of untreated versus treated IBSC patients. And I'll tell you, having formulated letters of necessity and appeal templates are so, so, so wonderful in regarding to getting our drugs approved for our patients. All right, what about adherence? Some barriers, of course, include lack of efficacy. If it doesn't work, they're not going to use it, right? Adverse events. And we're going to talk about that in a little while, too. But what about burdensome treatment regimens? As I'm sure we can all think about some of our patients who are on multiple therapies, right? And they're not going to be able to remember to take all of these. So how do we expect that it's going to provide any kind of clinical benefit? Now, let's point out to some of the solutions. We've got newer, more effective therapies, which Dr. Cash is going to dive into a bit further in a few minutes. Safer therapies with fewer adverse events. Adverse event management, right? And also, 
We know that some of the solutions include careful counseling about medication, dosing, and again, treatment expectations, setting that up from the beginning. We also have some new medication tracking apps to help our patients in regards to adherence. Last but not least, let's review some comorbidities, right? So some barriers specifically regarding comorbidities include high rates of anxiety and depression, increase in chronic pain, and sometimes even increase in sleep disorders. How about the solutions to manage some of these comorbidities? Well, we know that it is appropriate to refer to specialists to help treat these comorbidities, right? Target our treatments specifically to revolve around their most predominant symptoms. So if it's pain and or if it's motility, use selective therapies. Educate your patients about comorbidities as well that go along with IBS. And of course, make sure you review their medications. Make sure there's no contraindication in dosing or any kind of drug interactions. And now we're going to move into the practicum. Leveraging the power of team-based care and novel and adjunct therapies in IBSC. During this session, both Dr. Cash and myself will be moderating. Well, thanks, Kim. And, you know, I want to say how much I appreciated your discussion because, you know, at its, at its core, when we look at, at IBS with constipation and chronic constipation, for that matter, at, you know, at just at the basis of symptoms, it seems relatively simple. We just need to make people poop. But as you so nicely demonstrated, you know, there's a lot more to these patients than, than what is on the surface. And there's comorbidities, there's significant healthcare issues, there's access to care issues, there's other physical uh, complaints and uh, symptoms. So I want to just say how much I appreciated your conversation with, with our audience and with me. Thank you so much, Dr. Cash. All right. Let's look at the evolution of care models specifically for our IBSC patients. So I'd have to say, again, I've had about 15 years worth of GI under my belt. And I think I began along with this traditional care model, right? So we had our primary care physician along with the GI provider. Well, then we've kind of seen a progression into this multidisciplinary type of approach. Still, though, with independent care, but this was inclusive more of a gastroenterologist, a dietitian, and then a behavioral therapist. But again, working more independently. And now we see a focus on integrated care using a collaborative, multidisciplinary, team-based approach. Now to clarify, team-based care is the provision of health services by at least two healthcare providers who work collaboratively with patients and their caregiver to accomplish shared goals within and across settings to achieve coordinated high-quality care. So how about the benefits, limitations, and solutions when evaluating a team-based care approach? So we look at the benefits, right? We've got expanded access to care. And this, of course, could mean an increased hours of coverage, possibly even shorter waiting times. We've got effective and efficient delivery of additional services. For example, patient education, behavioral health services, and care coordination. Also, there's potential for increased patient and job satisfaction, right? When you're feeling better, you're working better, right? 100%. And last but not least, there are definitely benefits that supports data in regards to quality improvement in regards to utilizing this team-based care approach for our IBS patients. But what about some of the limitations, right? We, of course, have team-based issues with accountability. How about conflict management? 
reflecting on progress. How do we look at that, right, from a team-based approach? The cost and resource availability. Does everybody have the ability to utilize this team-based approach? There's an unfamiliarity with, of course, best practices. And of course, there may be conflict in regards of norms across different types of professions. But we can't leave you here without giving you some solutions, right? Because we're talking about this team-based care. This is the evolution, of course, in our IBS kind of care for our patient. So looking at solutions, assign a team coordinator. This will help get everything together, right? Use a unified communication strategy. How are you going to communicate with all of your team members, right? Align teamwork with professional roles, which I think we're going to dive to in the next slide. And adjust a scope of care to reflect available resources and roles. You're not going to have all of the members of the team that we're going to discuss shortly available in your area. So how can you actually divide these things up appropriately? And of course, develop workflows. All right. So it really is a team approach. As you can see by the pie graph, in the center of the slide, there are many players within our IBS team. First of all, we've got our GI providers that help train and guide primary care providers in IBS management. They can provide expert information to patients to aid them in decision-making progress, right? And they offer a stepwise treatment plan. And of course, they provide education and counsel patients. We can't forget about our primary care providers that, of course, help specialists diagnose and manage our IBS patients. Also, they refer them to us as well, right? We've got our dietitians, which help with dietary changes, create individualized diet plans, and also provide education and counseling. I'm not sure if you're hearing a bit of a, uh, you know, something that's going on here, but education and counseling, right? That seems like that's a repetitive thing we're hearing in all of our team players, right? Education and counseling. What about our psychologist, right? They help manage behavioral comorbidities like we were talking about earlier. So what about anxiety and depression? We've got our nursing team, right? Which helps coordinate care, keeps everybody in line, right? And also, don't forget about that education component. We look at our advanced practice providers who helps explain, educate our IBS symptoms, explain therapeutic strategies, and works in collaboration with our physicians. And let's not forget, the most important piece, right, of this team is our patient, right? Our patient. So they can inform, of course, our GI team, specifically even the advanced practice providers in regards to any changes in their symptoms, if they're having an increase in severity of their symptoms, and of course, specifically to talk about adherence to medications and or diet. So how do we coordinate team collaboration for our IBS patients? This is ultimately a process, right, of an entire healthcare system, beginning with drivers of healthcare and having the ability to evaluate quality characteristics, right? So let's look at this. And again, this is from a patient perspective. So evaluating those inputs, these quality characteristics, these include the environment, living situation specifically. How about social input? This includes family, culture, and again, remembering literacy, especially when it comes to the education of our patients. There's also economic inputs, community inputs, and of course, us, the provider inputs. Now, let's evaluate the process. How do we make sure that we inherently develop this coordinated care delivery? This, this of course, includes collaboration, appropriate patient handoffs, clear roles of health, and professionals as team members. And what we're looking at here again in part of this process is 
looking at feedback mechanisms, which you can see here per the graph, uh, electronic healthcare records to share information amongst multiple team members, health promotion, education, focus on primary care, wellness, and prevention. And of course, this includes patient engagement and advocacy, along with community-based support. Last but not least, we're looking at outputs. What happens when we look at our inputs, then we look, move through the, the process, of course. We're looking specifically here at the outcomes to optimize system characteristics, right? So this includes the capacity, flexibility, quality, effectiveness, efficacy, advocacy, and equity, which all leads to wellness and, of course, well-being for our IBS population. And as you can see here, this is a continuum, right? We can see that all of these steps also lead back and have feedback going back to the input and, of course, the process with the central component, including that of the patient and the provider. Well, that's one of the best discussions that I've ever heard about a team-based approach to these patients. And so thanks, Kim, very much. Let's revisit these FDA-approved IBSC treatments. Now, remember, we've got three secretagogues, lubiprostone, which is a type 2 chloride channel, linaclotide and placanotide, which are both guanolate cyclase C agonists. They bind to a receptor called the GCC receptor, and they bring in fluid into the gut. Lubiprostone's doing that by bringing in chloride. And then we've got tenapinor, a fluid retaining agent. Its specific mechanism of action, remember, is a sodium hydrogen exchange isoform 3 inhibitor. Basically, it prevents sodium reabsorption from the GI tract. It holds sodium in the gut, and chloride and fluid want to neutralize that osmotic gradient, uh, and that comes in a dose of 50 milligrams twice a day. Let's look at some of the evidence for these FDA-approved therapies. We'll start with lubiprostone. It was the first of the four FDA-approved therapies that we have available. Lubiprostone has been shown to significantly improve the global symptoms of IBSC, but also the specific symptoms of abdominal pain and bloating. Now, bloating, as you'll remember, was not part of the Rome 4 criteria, actually not part of the Rome 3 or even the Rome 2 criteria in terms of IBS with constipation, but it is a frequent and very bothersome symptom that patients with IBSC and other forms of IBS will complain about. Now, when we look at these numbers from this study, which was done quite a while ago, they used a global endpoint and actually a relatively stringent uh, endpoint responder definition. This is a study where they called they, patients to be even a responder overall had to be what's called a monthly responder for at least two out of three months. And to be a monthly responder, patients had to have at least moderate relief for all four weeks out of a month or significant relief for at least two out of four weeks in a month. This is not the same endpoint that we currently look at in trials of medications for IBS with constipation. And the reason this was such a stringent endpoint was to try and drive down that placebo response rate. In these studies, the placebo response rate is typically somewhere in the 20 to 30% range. And you'll see in this study, it was about 10%. The difference in terms of active therapy with uh, lubiprostone at a dose of eight micrograms twice a day, that's different than the chronic constipation dose, was about 8%. Now, that was a statistically significant difference, highlighting that these results were very unlikely to be due to chance alone. There's also some longer-term data that's been shown to demonstrate the effectiveness of 
lubiprostone in patients all the way out to 36 weeks. And we use this therapy indefinitely in patients who respond. Remember the dose is eight micrograms twice a day. And for IBS-C, it's indicated only for women. For chronic idiopathic constipation, it's a higher dose uh, for men and women. Now let's look at some of the adverse events with libiprostone. The most common that we saw with regards to uh, patients with IBS-C was nausea. We saw this in the CIC studies as, as well. We do know that taking this medication with food and fluid, food and water, or any other fluid, does mitigate some of that nausea effect. It's not very common, but you can see it was more common than was seen with placebo. Diarrhea, abdominal pain, and abdominal distension are also slightly more common uh, with the lubiprostone patients in these studies compared to placebo. Now, if we want to summarize this, remember it's a secretagogue, it's a type 2 chloride channel activator. Its dose for IBSC is 8 micrograms twice a day in women. We don't use these or any other laxative therapies in patients with known or suspected mechanical GI obstruction. And we just talked about the adverse events, nausea, diarrhea, and abdominal pain primarily, but in a less than 10% of the population from the clinical trial data. Let's look at linaclotide, one of the GCC agonists. Now, this agent binds to GCC receptors throughout the GI tract, small bell as well as large bell. For those of you that aren't familiar with GCC receptors, these are receptors which uroguanulin and guanulin, two normal human peptides that we all generate when we eat, bind to, and they cause fluid secretion through activating that receptor. It's actually done through a second messenger and cyclic GMP. Now, this is a 14 amino acid peptide that's structurally similar to guanolin uroguanulin. The dose for IBS with constipation is 290 micrograms once a day. And in several clinical trials, linaclotide was shown to improve what's called the FDA composite endpoint. This is the contemporary endpoint that we look at in studies, or more importantly, the FDA looks at, in studies of drugs being investigated for IBS-C therapies. For that endpoint, patients have to have an improvement in their worst abdominal pain by at least 30%. At the same time, and then generally for constipation, this is the same week, that they have an increase by at least one complete spontaneous bowel movement. Now, what in the world is that? That's simply a bowel movement in which the patient's not needing to use a laxative and they feel completely evacuated. And that's typically what I ask patients in clinic. Do you have to use laxatives? Do you feel like you get everything out? I don't ask them about CSBMs, but that's how it's measured in a clinical trial. You can see in these studies that the difference between placebo and linaclotide was anywhere from 10 to is almost nearly 20% in terms of those differences for that primary outcome. It also was shown to significantly improve abdominal pain and bloating. Now, adverse events associated with anaclotide, the most common is diarrhea. This is what we need to warn our patients about. We do recommend patients take this on an empty stomach 30 minutes before their first meal of the day. You can see other adverse events, abdominal pain, flatulence, and abdominal distension, slightly more common than placebo, but not remarkably so. Um, but diarrhea does occur in these patients, and there are ways to mitigate that. To summarize, this is a secretagogue, linaclotide. It's a GCC agonist. The dose is 290 micrograms once daily. It's contraindicated in patients with known or suspected GI obstruction, and its most common adverse events, diarrhea, abdominal pain, flatulence, and distension. So we also have available to us placanotide. This is another GCC agonist. I won't go over the mechanism of action because it's very similar to that of linaclotide. Now, the main difference here, though, is that placanotide 
is thought to bind in a more acidic environment, meaning more the small bowel binding, as opposed to colonic binding to this receptor. The dose for IBS with constipation is three milligrams a day for placanotide. And similar to other GCC agonists, there were two pivotal trials that were done in IBS-C patients. You can see the differences with the same primary endpoint or a similar primary endpoint, 30% improvement in pain, as well as an increase by at least one CSBM per week, in this case, for at least 50% of the weeks in a 12-week trial. And it was about a 13 to 15% difference or 16% difference with placanotide compared to placebo. And those were statistically significantly more in favor for placanotide. Now, what about adverse events? Well, diarrhea is the most common adverse event that we see with placanotide in clinical practice. And you can see the numbers relative to placebo here. Uh, severe diarrhea is uncommon, but it is more common with placanotide taking patients. And then discontinuation, a little bit more than 1% in the clinical trials that we just went over. This also should be taken with or without food. Uh, so there's not really such a food predominance or food uh, issue with regards to placanotide. Three milligrams once a day is that standard dose. Just to summarize, this is another secretagogue. It's a GCC agonist, works primarily in a more acidic environment, so a more small bowel environment. Dose is three milligrams once a day for placanotide for IBSC. We don't use it in children. It's only approved for adult therapies and we don't use it in patients with known or suspected GI obstruction. Most common adverse event that was seen in the trials was diarrhea. Now let's talk about tenapenor. We've mentioned this earlier. This is a sodium hydrogen exchanger isoform three inhibitor. What that means in English is that it traps sodium, water, and phosphate in the GI lumen and also can provide some pain modulation through what's called the TRPV1 receptor. This is a vanilloid receptor. It's the same receptor that is involved in pain sensation when we eat hot peppers. Now, one of the studies that we're showing you is a dose-ranging study, and this is how they figured out that 50 milligrams twice a day was the right dose for patients. And you'll see that in this study, that 50 milligrams twice a day outperformed other doses of tenapenor as well as placebo, for the primary endpoint in this study, which was an increase by at least one CSBM per week over baseline for at least 50% of the treatment weeks. Now, the dose that was subsequently approved based on uh, phase three registration trials with tenapenor was 50 milligrams twice a day. And those studies did show improvement not only in pain by at least 30%, but also improvement in complete spontaneous bowel movement frequency. Now, when we look at adverse events and tolerability, diarrhea is the most common adverse event that we see with tenapenor, 16% versus 4% in the clinical pivotal trials. Uh, abdominal distension slightly more common as well as flatulence and dizziness. Severe diarrhea was reported in only 2.5% of patients treated with tenapenor compared to 0.2% of patients treated with placebo. And typically, if diarrhea did occur, it was mild or moderate and less than one week in duration. So remember, the dose for tenapenor is 50 milligrams twice a day, immediately prior to breakfast and dinner. When we look at the safety of tenapenor, here are the, and the tolerability, here are the most common adverse events. Diarrhea is the most common. You can see that uh, it was more common than uh, placebo in the clinical trials that were done with tenapenor, abdominal distension, flatulence, and dizziness, also slightly more common compared to placebo. 
Now, when diarrhea does occur, it's typically mild to moderate, and it generally lasts less than one week. Severe diarrhea was reported in only 2.5% of patients who received tenapinor in the clinical trials, compared to 0.2% who received placebo. Remember that dosage of this newly approved therapy is 50 milligrams twice a day for patients with IBS with constipation, and it should be used immediately before the breakfast and dinner meal. So just to summarize tenapinor, it's an NHE3 inhibitor. It increases intestinal fluid, decreases visceral hypersensitivity. Its dose is 50 milligrams twice a day. It should be taken immediately before the breakfast and dinner meal. It should only be used in adult patients who it's not been studied in children or adolescents. And its main adverse events include diarrhea, distension, flatulence, and dizziness. So, Ms. Kearns, let's talk about tolerability. How do you manage the adverse events that we just alluded to in your patients? Yeah, great. That's a great question, Dr. Cash. Well, first and foremost, I just want to point out for all of our providers, if someone is having severe diarrhea, I know that Dr. Cash would agree. You pause treatment until you can provide an adequate assessment. And again, diarrhea can sometimes be subjective, right? So we have to really find out what, what symptoms the patient is having. So again, pause until you can evaluate. I think one of the common threads here we hear, we see, we've heard you say, though, is regards to timing of the medication. So how do I manage this? I really go back and ask my patient, when are you taking your dose? If they're experiencing nausea from lubiprostone, I remind them to take it with food or liquid, right? Some of my other, the other therapies that you mentioned, especially the GCC agonists, right? I'll ensure that they're taking that medicine on an empty stomach, right? Um, so these are some of the, the kind of pearls that, of course, I've utilized in practice. How about you, Dr. Cash? Yeah, no, I do the exact same thing. I think it's a very practical answer. The other thing that I do is sometimes I do get creative with dosing and, and frequency of some of these therapies. And we do have that, that leeway. You know, that's kind of the art of medicine that's based on clinical best judgment, not necessarily the FDA approved doses and indications. But sometimes that can be helpful as well. Great. Well, we hope that you could take some of these practice pearls back for your patients too. Well, let's just talk about a little bit about emerging agents. So there is a very robust pipeline with regards to therapies and targets for IBSC. Now, none of these therapies are available right now. Most of them have acronyms and numbers and abbreviations, but you can see that there are a number of different classes that are being evaluated. Prokinetic therapies to increase gastrointestinal motility bile acid sequestrants and bile acids, in fact. So bile acid sequestrants more for diarrhea, but bile acids to induce some looser stool. Um, there's some agents even that we don't even know exactly what they do, although they seem to be nicotinic receptors. That's something called TC6499. Uh, Itapride has been looked at for functional dyspepsia for quite a while. That's a dopamine and acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. You can see a lot of these therapies are in phase two, uh, type of development, and, and in some cases, very, very investigational. But the point is that there is a rich pipeline of therapies that's hopefully some of these will come to fruition. Maybe we'll see these in 10 years or so. All right, let's talk about dietary considerations in patients with IBS with constipation. FODMAPs, we all know we're very familiar with these. We've heard this acronym. This is an important symptom generator for bloating, more so, I think, for diarrhea when we talk about bowel habits. But it can play a role, FODMAPs can play a role in our patients with constipation. So it's something to think about in terms of using our dietitian. Again, part of that team-based care that, that Kim talked about. Gluten-free diets, we all encounter patients who don't have celiac disease, who swear by a gluten-free diet. We call them 
people who avoid gluten, there is some value in some of these patients. Um, there, I think there truly is a gluten sensitivity or really, but probably better said, a wheat or even grain sensitivity. And I encourage patients to do that. There's some theoretical concerns about nutritional deficiencies that have never really been proven. And if they help our patient's symptoms, then it's okay for them to avoid gluten. Now, food antigens and food antigen testing, still very much investigational. There are some recent studies that suggest there may be some value to doing this. Um, this had its heyday about 10 or 15 years ago and then kind of fell out of favor. And now we're getting some better assays. So there may be something to certain food sensitivities as well. Doing a food full, a full food allergy panel has not been shown to be cost-effective nor clinically effective. So I do counsel you not to embrace that type of uh, approach. Let's talk a little bit about low FODMAP diets. And what we're really talking about is non-pharmacologic therapy. This is a slightly busy slide. It's a meta-analysis, actually several meta-analyses. The bottom line here is that low FODMAP diets can help patients' overall symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome. In general, we see this more beneficial for patients with diarrhea than constipation, but it may be something that you want to endorse or use with some of your patients with constipation, specifically for that bloating symptom. Let's also talk about psychological therapy. Again, Kim alluded to this with, with our psychologists and, and behavioralists. I really truly think that the data and is incontrovertible that psychological-based therapies can be a very important adjunctive therapy, specifically cognitive behavioral therapy and gut-directed hypnotherapy. We know there's an important linkage with the gut-brain axis. Kim talked a lot about that, educated us very well about that. There's a bi-directional communication, and we have to recognize that there's information coming from the top to the bottom and the bottom to the top, and there's sometimes some disordered communication, sometimes some yelling or, or some loud talk from those areas. So using these types of therapies, mindfulness meditation, gut-related, gut-directed uh, hypnotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, these are all very um, closely aligned. They're more coping mechanisms, distracting mechanisms, but realigning patients' physical experience, and this has been shown to be very helpful. Now, one of the issues with regards to this is access. And this is a meta-analysis data that shows that, um, that these types of therapies do work. They improve quality of life. They improve psychological states. They improve physical symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome. But we don't all have access to these type of practitioners. So there is some hope. There are actually applications and devices and remote systems that you can use with your patients to help them get these types of therapies. And I've, we provided a list here with a number of different names, different types of therapies, cognitive behavioral therapy, gut-directed hypnotherapy. And these have many of these have been shown in some clinical trials and some actually FDA-approved clinical trials uh, to be beneficial for our patients with IBS symptoms. So let's revisit the case of Kate. We've already gone over her medical history. She's got a long history of abdominal pain, gas bloating, hard lumpy stools. She's got some anxiety. She's got a negative workup. She's tried some therapies such as fiber and laxatives to no avail. Uh, she had some side effects with some of the laxatives that she tried, and she tried bulking agents, and they didn't help. So, Kim, I'm going to turn it back over to you to take us out with regards to this case. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Cash. So, let's take what we've talked about today, this teen-based care, and let's apply it to Kate's clinical presentation, right? So, first of all, we talked about needing a care coordinator to assign Kate, right? So we can get all of her team members together to provide the best outcome for her. So let's use our GI team 
to meet with Kate and then decide collectively on a treatment plan, right? Using that shared decision-making concept. Then again, another box we see here is looking at our GI team, of course, after we've had this shared decision-making plan, to then decide to refer Kate maybe to behavioral health, right? For maybe some issues to manage some of her anxiety. We talked about that brain-gut correlation, right? And also to a dietitian to help manage some of her dietary concerns that she's having. Now, let's look at the other members of our team. We've got our nurse and our advanced practice provider to help document referrals and, of course, the follow-ups. Again, to help with communicating with all of those team members. Now, we have our nurse and advanced practice provider helps to arrange a team meeting, right, with our gastroenterology physician partner, right, our advanced practice providers, our behavioral health team, and our dietitian to look at everything collectively, right, in this integrative care that we're developing for Kate. And of course, through continued follow-up, Kate informs her GI team about any adverse events and, of course, hopefully our progress so that we can refine her treatment if needed. So let's talk about how we're going to select a treatment plan for Kate. So we're going to continue with anxiety management, right, and adhere to a high-fiber diet that she talked about with the dietitian. So since Kate's tried multiple therapies, including linaclotide, she and her team decide to initiate treatment with tenopinor, 50 milligrams twice daily, immediately prior to breakfast and or the first meal of the day, and immediately prior to dinner. She's been informed of the side effects and she knows to communicate with her team, right? That's the most important part. We've talked to her about using apps to track her progress with diet and also therapy, right, to help any of those barriers and use that data, of course, to inform her GI team, advanced practice providers, about her progress. And of course, we as the providers will help Kate manage any adverse events. Now, if Kate continues to have persistent constipation, which is refractory, of course, to prescription-based medication, then, of course, we'll refer her to pelvic floor testing and then refer for pelvic floor therapy if her testing is abnormal. All right, Dr. Cash, let's bring it home here. I'm going to start with this first set of conclusions here. So as Dr. Cash started off our discussion, IBSC has a varied pathophysiology and not all treatments work for everyone. We now have agents with novel targets, such as our NHE3, right, which could help patients with IBSC. IBSC care is ideally patient-focused and team-based. We have a patient and clinician relationship that we need to work and make strong, right? Our team-based care needs to be led by a GI provider. We have to incorporate our nurses, our advanced practice providers, our GI physician partners, primary care doctors, dietitians, and our behavioral health partners. Incorporating digital technology may actually help manage our patient symptoms, including diet, right? And of course, following their stool frequency. All right. And I'll take this one. So remember the goals of treatment for IBS with constipation. We want to relieve the primary symptoms, abdominal pain and discomfort, as well as the constipation symptoms. We also want to improve global symptoms. Now, that's not part of many of the clinical trials that we re reviewed, but that's really important. And quite frankly, that's what I follow. And I suspect that's what you all follow in clinical practice. How are you feeling? Do you feel better? Are you satisfied with therapy? 
And then we can dive into those individual symptoms and see if maybe we can tweak some of those. Treatment options, as we talked about, start with diet and lifestyle modifications. We can start with non-pharmacologic therapies as well, cognitive behavioral therapy, bulking agents, over-the-counter laxatives. But then we also do have an armamentarium of prescription therapies that we can use, including lubiprostone, linaclotide, placanotide, and tenapnor. And I really want to highlight the team-based approach that Kim spent so much time talking about. It's so valuable. We don't have to do that in every patient. But in some patients, unless we do it in some patients, we'll never know how to do it for those more difficult patients when we really need it. So in conclusion, on behalf of Ms. Kearns and myself, we want to share some takeaways from this program. And those are that IBSC can be managed with patient-focused, team-based care, including lifestyle modifications, an increasing number of effective medical therapies that are available, and more accessible adjunctive therapies that can help our patients manage their symptoms effectively. We both want to thank you very much for your participation and for your attention in today's program. This activity is certified by the Society of Gastroenterology Nurses and Associates. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash RZN860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Artelix.